Thanks for choosing this podcast from New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church, entitled, Thumbs No, Scraps Not Thumbs, Scraps Not Thumbs, by Pastor Daniel Stevenson at New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church. Listen, enjoy, and reach New Heights in Jesus. Your name to call on a savior. 
Scraps, not thumbs. Scraps, not thumbs. I just want to tell you a story real quick before we go to the scripture that will help, I think, put this in perspective, and then I'll bring it back here to tighten it down at the end. Okay? So when I was uh, about five and a half years old, my family moved. Uh, I got that wrong. Six and a half years old. My family moved from the other side of Northwood. It's called the other side you know, of Northwood to the middle of Northwood. And uh, back then there wasn't nearly as many houses on this side where the mall used to be and like that. And so there was the other side and then there was the side that I moved to. And so when we switched, we switched to elementary schools. And it was uh, midway through uh, that year. Um, my experiences at my old elementary school were interesting. My brother's four and a half years older than me and I became his protector. I became his protector because I was the toughest little snot for about three miles in any direction. I wore cowboy boots every day, and I wasn't afraid to use them. And so everybody decided that they didn't want to mess with Dan. And my brother Tom was a peaceable soul, gentle and compassionate, 
and everybody liked to mess with him, but not when Dan was around. So that became my life for all of kindergarten and part of first grade. We rode our bikes to school, and uh, occasionally someone would decide that they wanted to test just how much that little snot could do, and we would have trouble on the way to and from school. Uh, in fact, one mom came griping at my mother one day in the afternoon and said, uh, your son beat up my son. And she, she pulled Tom out of the house, and he was born after said, my son beat up your son, and her, his son, even, even this kid that was in my brother's grade was still 15, 20 pounds heavier than my brother. And she said, my son? She said, no, your other son. And my mom said, go away. My, my kindergartner beat up your fifth grader, and you're going to come, come give me a hassle about that? So that was what my life was like at that time. During that period of time, this incident takes place. Down the road from our house is Brentwood Park. Many of you have been to Brentwood Park. It's where we often practice softball, and softball teams meet in the spring, which will begin again in just a couple of months. Um, yeah, <laughs> looking forward to that. Getting out, stretch my muscles. Um, anyway, Brentwood Park. Yeah, I have been, as a matter of fact. Um, at that time, it didn't have the pretty asphalt parking lot that it has now. It had a gravel parking lot, and the gravel parking lot had been pitted and thinned. And so they had a load of gravel brought in, and this was, to me, it was really at that point in time in my life, it was the only mountain that I had ever seen. It was over 20 feet tall. Uh, and I know this because I got in trouble with it, and then afterwards my dad told me, that thing's over 20 feet tall. Um, and I, I remember those words very loudly. But anyway, uh, so the first day they delivered it was a Friday. And the next day was a Saturday, and no one had school. So all the kids were down there playing on the gravel. And we decided we were going to play King of the Mountain. You remember that game? <laughs> so 20-foot tall mountain of gravel. And it began with about 10 or 15 guys between the ages of me and fifth grade um, on the top of this 20-foot tall mountain of gravel trying to shove one another off. Pretty soon it became evident that cowboy boots also work in gravel. And I was the only one on the top of the mountain with my brother. And I pushed him off and became the king of the mountain. So they kept coming up, and I kept pushing them off. Now, the mountain was not only 20 feet tall, but the top of the mountain, and it went down to some smaller hills on the side. The top of the mountain was about 30 feet long. It was pretty long. So I'm slugging back and forth as they're trying to come up at different points, and every time they try to come up, I grab them, and I throw them back down the hill, or I kick them in the shin or whatever, and I'm king of the mountain. <laughs> I'm thinking, this is a great game, right? It's not bothering me at all, except I'm getting tired, so everything's going really good. And then I'm standing up at the, the top of the top of the mountain, and I'm feeling like the king, right? I'm the king of the mountain. I'm feeling great. And I'm in, I'm in like kindergarten. I'm like, and they're fourth and fifth graders that couldn't come. And a couple guys came at the same time, whatever. Then I, I'm standing up there, and I notice, I look down, and there's like six guys, and they're standing in a huddle, talking. <laughs> and suddenly, fear gripped my heart. I had never fallen down the mountain the whole time I was playing King of the Mountain. I had no desire to fall down the mountain. It was 20 feet down, a 45 or whatever degree slope. And gravel hurts when you fall in it when it's flat, let alone when you fall 15 feet first. And I could, I could see they were getting scratches and stuff. And I'm, I'm standing up there and I'm watching there. And a couple of kids came on their own from the other side and I shoved them back down. But the whole time my wheels are spinning. I'm going, okay. The, it was like a couple third graders, a couple fourth graders, a couple fifth graders. are all bigger than me. And I'm thinking... You know, if they work together, I'm about to get thrown off this mountain. 
And so I, I did what all good kindergartners do when that situation arises. I said, that's it, I'm done. And I walked off the hill and I walked right down the hill to the end. I walked right off and they went right on playing without me and everything was fine. Or so I thought. So I get home and I get in big trouble. I got mostly in big trouble because I pushed my brother down the hill like three times. He didn't tell him we were playing King of the Mountain. He said, Dan, push me down the hill three times or whatever it was. And so I got, my dad said, that's a 20-foot tall gravel. You shouldn't be on top of that anyway. And he said it really loudly, which hurt my ears. And then he said it really physically, which hurt my rear. And then I was grounded for a little while. And then, Sunday, and then Monday I went to school. And I found out that there were a lot of guys that did not forget that game of King on the Mountain. In fact, the group that had formed to cast me off the mountain now became the group that formed to teach me that I was not that tough little snot in the neighborhood. And I had no one to look to, including my brother, because not only was he compassionate, he was not backing me up. I want you to bear that in mind then as we look at this text today. I think it's a filter through which we can hear God's word, the game of King of the Hill. Grab your Bibles if you would. We tend to hoot, holler, say amen, at least blow out your breath in some kind of noisy way as we go to Judges chapter 1. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. That marks the time at which God's word is given free reign to speak in this place. So I'm asking you now to just listen to what God says, whether I get this right or wrong. Uh, in fact, between me and God, one of us is more likely to get it wrong. So I just suggest you listen to God, okay? Judges 1 verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? So Joshua's the guy, right? We did the whole book of Joshua, right? And so Joshua has passed away. Now at the end of the book of Judges, Eliezer passed away, and it almost seems like it was more his story as a high priest of the Lord than it was Joshua's, even though the book has Joshua's name. We looked at that pretty hard. Well, now Joshua has passed away, and you know, Joshua was the military organizer. He was the guy whom God had put in charge. He was the guy who said, you know, you go do this, you go do that. You promised you'd do this, keep your promise. And he was doing all that. Well, now he's gone. And so they ask God, and they say, who's going to go up for us against the Canaanites first? Who is the tribe of people, basically, is what they're asking, is going to go up first? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. <laughs> Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And so they're talking about going up. We'll get a pretty specific going up in a minute, but they're talking about going up. And so Judah, Judah was one of the biggest tribes, may have been the biggest, and it will gain the territory around Jerusalem, which will become the, tap, the capital of uh, Israel. And so they said, God said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Verse 3, then Judah said to Simeon, his brother, which is a smaller tribe, but they, geographically they're very nearby, uh, come up with me into the territory allotted me that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I in turn will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So basically they're making a partnership. Let's work together to go up and take over the land, and then, uh, then we'll go up and take over your land. And so we'll win both by working together, Okay. So Simeon went with them, and Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 men at Bezek, or Bezek, okay? So that's just a specific geographical location, it doesn't really matter exactly where it's at, but it's not too awful far from Jerusalem. And they found 
Adoni or Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Okay, so let's stop there for one second. We have an interesting character here. Now, uh, historically speaking, we're not 100% sure that uh, Adonai or Adonai Bezek was his actual name. In the Greek, it sort of translates the Lord of Bezek, right? So he was the ruler. And it may have been his name, but it may not have been his name. That doesn't really matter. We know based on what he had done, and we'll see a little bit more of that in a second, what he was. He was the leader of the region, right? He was the king. He had taken it. He had ruled it for some time, probably been in his family for some time and so on. And now they've taken him. They found him in Bezek and fought against him. And they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites, but Adoni Bezek fled. And they pursued him and they caught him and they cut off his thumbs and his toes. Now the idea of that is obviously to totally dishonor him. He no longer has any authority, but on top of that, he can't fight, right? So he was probably a pretty powerful warrior in his own right. That's all done now. And so basically he'll beg for the rest of his life. Verse 7. And Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table, as I have done. So God has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. That is a significant moment in time. And we're going to stop reading the text right there, but it's a really significant moment in time because throughout the entire time of Joshua, they never were able to conquer Jerusalem. So this is the first conquering of Jerusalem. This is when they essentially take that city, which has a unique geographical location. It's extremely defensible and so on in that area. And it really, without Jerusalem, if you can't take Jerusalem, you really cannot control that region uh, permanently. Okay, so Adoni Bezek is the interesting character. He's not, he's not really a follower of God, but you notice that in the midst of his... Worst defeat, when he is captured, defeated, his armies are gone, and they've taken his nation, and they've cut off his thumbs and his toes, he sees something. And I submit to you that it was defeat that revealed this to him. All his life he had lived, and probably part of the royal family, maybe a repeat descendant, he may have been king after king after king. Um, but it was when he was stricken, like those that he struck, that he realized something. Now, he might just have said, sometimes this happens. Sometimes it happens that God pays back those who are vicious to others with viciousness. And you could extend that to lying, stealing, murder, adultery, gossip, slander. How you treat others, uh, sometimes God pays it back. I think the world sees that. We talk about things like karma. Uh, talk about that's the way the cookie crumbles. You know, sometimes it just goes that way. People say, uh, they pick up the lessons as they're trying to get ahead in the world and they say things like, well, he who has the gold makes the rules and they interpret that to mean, well, I need to get me some gold so I can make the rules. But that isn't actually how the universe works, is it? Now, Adoni Bezek, in response to his defeat, he, he sees that God has done to him what he did to 70 kings. And they ate scraps from his table. They, they, they didn't probably literally sit under the table, but certainly symbolically. And they only received from his table the scraps. Not the finest meats anymore. That's all gone. Not with great resources. That's all gone. Not on fine cutlery. It's all gone. 
not drinking the greatest wine with their meals. That's all gone. Now they essentially sit under the table and re- receive the scraps. And Adoni Bezik says, well, now that's, it's come on me because of God what I was doing to them. This happens because defeat sometimes gives us a peek under the blanket of false victory. See, Adoni Bezik was living his life this way. Every king that ever rose against him, every person that ever said anything against him, every kingdom that built a big enough army to be a challenge, every attack that ever came, every outpost that was ever attacked, every caravan that was ever pillaged, he took his army out and crushed them and then cut off their thumbs and their toes, stealing their honor. I wonder if Adoni Bezik ever sat and said, I wonder when someone will come against me next. I wonder if he ever said, oh, look at all these kings that now just beg and how successful I have been. How many defeats I have caused. How many victories I have won. And then in his defeat, he begins to get a hint, a picture, if you will, that his victories were really false. If your life is a road and you're on it going somewhere, where you actually arrive at says a lot about the road that you're on. If I get on I-75 south, I'm not going to Detroit unless I turn around. And so as Adoni Bezek is dealing with this concept, he says, God has done to me what I did to so many. Now, he doesn't have very long to figure it out because it isn't long. They take him to Jerusalem. During, probably during the siege of Jerusalem, he passes away. It's a rather rather relatively catastrophic event sometimes when we were able to peek under the blanket of false victory. But the fool experiences defeat just as well as the wise man, right? We all experience defeat at times. Sometimes things don't go the way we want them to go. The idea of that defeat is for us to look under the false, the blanket of false victory to see this is not my home. This is not my house. This is not my end destination. And then to say, if that is so, I need a ticket to the next place. I've got to go where I'm going. I want to get there someday. I don't want to be stuck here where defeat is a present everyday reality. We think this body, we learn, I guess you could say, this body is not my vessel. It is not my destination. Now, I, I want to do the best I can to take care of my vessel. Right? I want to do the best I can to use my vessel for day-to-day victory, but when it becomes, when my life becomes my destination here on earth, you've missed what is revealed by that peak under the blanket of false victory. You've missed the fact that a ticket is available. When you know the Lord Jesus Christ, then, it's not only a ticket is available, but it's, I have a ticket. When I realize that things are not going the way I want them to go, things are not turning out the way I had hoped, it reminds me that I have a ticket beyond this. I'm reminded of a, the book Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, which I w- had the good fortune to read in um, college, not in high school. Um, and at the end of the story, old Tom, he's on the barge, and he's going down the river, down the Mississippi River, to a plantation farmer where he will never see the light of day. In fact, they know that he will die there because this plantation farmer is always bad on really, only really bad on big slaves, and he's a big, strong guy, and they know that he will die there. 
his family's weeping for him, whatever. And as he lays on the barge crying, he's weeping as he's going down the barge. And she writes the story and she says, he's not weeping. He was not weeping for himself. And I'm sure that most people who read that story for the first time went, he's not weeping for himself? In the midst of defeat, he's not weeping for himself? On the way down the, the river to be destroyed, to never see his family again, not his wife, his kids, his, none of his friends, none of them, to never see any of them, and he's not weeping for himself? And she writes, no, rather he was weeping for all those around him who were lost, who did not know Jesus Christ, who did not have salvation. I submit to you that book moved the nation, and it was a big part of it. Abraham Lincoln would call her the little woman who moved a nation to war, the author, Harry Beecher Stowe, I think it was. Anyway, that book moved them not because his situation was so dire, not because he was suffering so badly. I mean, not even because he was a human and he was in difficult and people were like, well, I want to help him because he's a human and nobody should have to go through that. They weren't moved in compassion. They were moved because they too had been in defeat. They too had been in a terrible place. And in that terrible place, they could sense that peak under the blanket of false victory to realize that there is something more, something more significant, something that someplace I'm supposed to be going. And if they were Christians, if they were followers of Lord Jesus Christ, then they realized that that peak under the blanket was to remind them that this is not where we're going. We're going somewhere ultimately better. And I have my ticket. And so if you never experience the defeat, you never get to peek under the blanket of false victory to remind you that you have your ticket to real victory. And so when they read that book and they think about how he has his ticket to real victory. He is seeing under the blanket of false victory. If he, he could have lived on the plantation up north, if he could have got a good master or whatever, all those things would have been great. But he didn't. He's on a barge going away, weeping for those who don't have a ticket. Because he had his ticket. And they who read the book experienced the same thing. They said, oh, I get this. I understand this because I have experienced defeat and I have peeked under the blanket. Now, many of them probably had not gotten their ticket, but they could, they could resonate with the experience nonetheless. The peek under the blanket also reminds us that we have been found worthy to testify as we overcome the difficulty that there is a ticket that it is available, and so on. This all happens because defeat gives us a peek under the blanket of false victory, but the fool believes the false victory and not what he sees under the blanket. Not the truth. Not that there actually is somewhere else to go. Not that there actually is an eternal destination. Not that there is a great victory that is not false, but still focuses on, I want the better car. I want the better job. I want the better relationship. I wish my wife, my husband would just do what I tell them to do or just do what I want them to do, right? I want to feel better. I want to appease my senses, whatever. And just because of that, they continue chasing after the false victory and never actually arrive at the victory. <laughs> but the wise man, the Christian, I would hope, the follower of Lord Jesus Christ, has seen the truth and realizes that there is a destination that transcends the physical flesh. And realizes that the truth, we shall be recompensed, we will get back unto us that which we have given to others, 
That's no falsehood. It doesn't just sometimes happen. If you're following along in your Bibles, if you would, you can turn to Romans chapter 11. And Paul is writing to the church at Rome. And the book is full of a lot of good stuff, obviously. Beginning in verse 33, this is what he writes. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And my translation puts an exclamation point there. So let me say it this way. Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. The wisdom and the knowledge of God. Just exactly how far does the truth go once the blanket of false victory has been revealed? Well, he says, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. In other words, what God says is right. People just have a hard time understanding, have a hard time wrapping their human brains around. How unfathomable as you you dig in and you try to figure it out to really piece it together and see how God does it. That's, That's really a challenge. 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? You didn't set it up. I didn't set it up. I can just, I can't, I couldn't count on all my fingers and all my toes the number of times that in the midst of defeat, I've asked myself, why does it have to be this way? Why did she have to die? Why did he have to say that? Why did we have to go through that? And the, the judgments, his ways, they're unfathomable. I am not the one to tell God how to do this. You are not the one to tell God how to do this. God knows how to do this. And it says in verse 35, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? In other words, did you give something to God that God didn't already have and therefore God kind of owes you? No, rather in verse 36 it says, from him, that's God, and through him, that's God, and to him, that's God, are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Oh, but this is what we do. We set it up, whatever it is, this is what I want to accomplish, this is what I want to do. We knock it down. Yeah, I did it. We cut its thumb off to make sure that we know that that, that's been dealt with. We have our victory. We manipulated. We We pushed them, we encouraged them, we talked them into it, we did it, we spent it, we bought it, we owned it, we stored it. But the victory is not about the thumbs. It's never found in the thumbs. They're God's thumbs anyway, right? It's not in the thumbs. It's in the time in between thumbs. That's where the victory is actually at. Or maybe after the thumbs. That's where the victory is actually at. We will be recompensed for what we do. For it is up to each man essentially to die and then the judgment. We will be recompensed. Doesn't just sometimes happen that way. It always happens that way.
many cases, this will result in a great reversal. For people who have used others, for people who have become rich at the expense of others, for people who have become satisfied by hurting others, and that goes everything from manipulating situation, lying, tricking, scandal, gossip, slander, to the silent treatment, to telling somebody to shut up or telling them that they're stupid, or punching them in the head, or hurting their family to get back at them. The list just goes on and on and on. Don't think that death row is the only place that this standard applies. For some, these earthly results lead to a great reversal of fortune. We're going to read one more text, if you go with me, to the book of Revelation. And we're going there for an object lesson, if you will. We're not going to be inter deeply interpreting Scripture, uh, talking about deep theological doctrines or anything like that. I just want you to see how it results in great reversal of fortune for a few characters in one chapter of the book of Revelation. The chapter is 17, and we're going to begin reading in verse 7. Okay? <clears throat> now John is speaking. John is the author. And he says, And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her. He saw that, and then he was wondering about what exactly that meant, and so on. So he says, I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. And the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come out of the abyss and to go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. In other words, they're baffled. You might even say they get a peek under the blanket. Verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one as the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. So now we've got the, this symbolic of the horns and the, and the mountains on the beast. She rides that, remember. So she is having a great day riding this beast that looks like this. And the beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven. And he goes to destruction. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings. So they're going to be riding high. They receive authority as kings, which the beast, with the beast for one hour. They have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. So they're going to ride high shortly, but then they're going to give it all to the beast. All of these will wage war against the lamb. That's Jesus. And the lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. So, you get, so just kind of simply taking, you get ten kings, they rise up with one purpose. They live high for a while, then they give all their power to the one. Right? And, that, and then all of them together fight against the Lamb, and they're defeated. And the ones that are with the Lamb are the called and chosen and faithful. So it's a total reversal of fortune. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, listen to this, remember she's riding high, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. 
For God has put it in their hearts to execute His purpose. Did you hear that? To execute His purpose. In other words, they will eat her alive and burn her with fire because God is going to use them for His purpose. For God has put it in their hearts to execute His purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast by giving their until the words of God should be fulfilled. And the woman who you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Don't have to get into all the little idiosyncrasies or nitpicking here, but what we do have to realize is this is talking about a huge reversal of fortune. She's riding the beast, and now the beast is ripping her apart and burning what's left of her. The kings are riding high, and they give all that to the beast. And then that goes, that goes they consume her, and then they all, go, all of them come in all their power and glory and might. They come against the lamb who died for the sins of mankind, and he defeats them all. So let's assume for a moment... That in your defeat, as you're facing struggle, you get a hint under the blanket. This is not where you belong. This is not your end destination. There is something bigger. You need a ticket. A ticket is available. Maybe you have a ticket. I hope you have a ticket. You peek under the blanket, and you get stupid and go, but I really have to deal with these things here first. I have to deal with this. I have to make sure I got the job. I got the money. I got, the, I got to fight. I got to, I got to take care of all these variables. And while you're taking care of all those variables, you're missing everything that you saw under the blanket. Everything that was in the peak, right? But realize, as with Adoni Besek, maybe you only get a limited number of peaks under the blanket. And the truth is, you get a lot of victories. Now, they're false victories by comparison to the chief victory, the one that God is really trying to do. But you get a lot of victories, right? You get up, and a little bit later, you go, man, I'm glad I got up today. Sometimes you go, man, I'm not so glad I got up today. And you find out that you're actually in defeat, right? That's a peek under the blanket. If you're not so glad you got up today, let me say this to you. When you get to heaven, there will literally never be a day, though there will be an infinite number of days, there will never be a day in which you are not so glad you got up. That'll never happen. That testifies to you, that peek under the blanket reminds you that this is not your home. This is not the place at which you were created for. Ultimately, you will live eternally with God if you have a ticket. And it's not a literal ticket, is it? So in the life of Adoni Bezik, we see it played out in two ways. We do see the great reversal of fortune, right? He took down 70 kings, and he took their thumbs and their toes, and they all ate scraps from his table. And then he sees the great reversal of fortune, and now he's eating scraps from table. He doesn't do it for very long because he goes down pretty quickly after that. So he sees the great reversal of fortune. After taking out 70 kings, he has taken out just once. Now, we don't know. Did Adoni Bezek, in that one defeat, realize that there is a true victory? That God really is in charge and he really will recompense you for what you do? For who you are and for in whom you have trusted? Or was it more like lip service? God's people who call upon God that I don't really know have now given me what I gave to others and accordingly God must have done that. It was a peek under the blanket for sure. We don't know whether he responded and you don't have to worry about whether Adoni Besik responded or not. You do have to worry about whether you respond. I'm here to tell you that as long as you live defeat will come again and also victory. Time and chance, Ecclesiastes says, happens to all men. So some days will go well, and others not so well. 
You, some days you would call a great victory. Some days you would call a great defeat. I submit to you that some of the days that you might call a great victory, God would call a great defeat. If your victory is false and hollow and doesn't lead you closer to the Lord, doesn't lead you into eternity with God, then it is exactly that. Jesus told a story, not a parable, but a story about a man named Lazarus. He was a poor man. He was sick most of his life. And there was a rich man, and they lived close together in the same town at least. In fact, Lazarus used to eat scraps from the table of the rich man. And when they died, they both got theirs. The rich man went to hell, and Lazarus went to heaven and was comforted in Abraham's bosom, is the phrase. And the rich man said, Let Lazarus, now mind you, this is the guy who was diseased, eating scraps from his table. Let him just dip his finger in cool water there and come and set it upon my tongue. That's a very intimate picture. That this man, who was not even fit to eat at my table, I never did a thing for him in his entire life as he was dying of disease, starving, suffering. Let him just dip his finger in the water there and come and cool my tongue. So he's going to stick it in his mouth. It's a pretty intimate picture. Of course, it's not allowed. Lazarus is not allowed to do that. Lazarus never hears the request. The angel says, no, can't do that. There's a gulf fixed between here and there. and No one crosses, so you can't do that. And he says, well, then just send, a, send Lazarus back to my brothers. I have four brothers. Send him back to my brothers. Let him tell them. And when he tells them, maybe they won't come here. And he says, no, because even if a man should rise from the dead, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, then even if a man should rise from the dead, they won't believe him. Who do you think he's talking about? See, we've seen defeat. We know what defeat looks like. In the ultimate worst defeat in life, we know what that looks like. It looks like Jesus crucified. Not that Jesus was being defeated, but he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God through him. There's also a woman who comes to Jesus. They say she was Syrophoenician. She was certainly a Canaanite, not a Jew. And she came to Jesus and she said, Jesus, my daughter is demon-possessed. Won't you please help me? And Jesus says, no, I've only come to the Jews. And she says, I understand. And he says, and it's not right to take that which is from the master's table and feed it to the dogs. And he was calling her a dog because that's what they used to call Gentiles. It was not a nice thing to say that really, but it was pretty accepted in the day. And he said that. And she said, yeah, but the dogs at least are allowed to eat the scraps that fall from the master's table. And Jesus says, oh, you have such faith. You have such faith. Go. It'll be done for you. Just exactly what you asked for. And she went and found her daughter freed from their demons. The Syrophoenician woman, a Canaanite, not a Jew, was in the midst of defeat and she got a peek under the blanket of false victory. You think she didn't get out of bed day after day, see a glimmer of hope in her daughter's eyes, think things just might be getting better, a little bit of healing? Or she got a, a gift from a neighbor or a piece of cake, it just felt a little better, a little chocolate something, and those false victories didn't help her to not think quite so much about what was going on with her daughter. But she had peeked under the blanket to realize there was something more, and she went to Jesus to ask for something more for her daughter. And she got exactly what she asked for, because she believed. If this is reality, and I'm here to say to you that I believe it is, then 
victory, the ultimate victory, overcoming the false victory, overcoming the defeats in reality, actually overcoming them is about a better exit strategy. It's like, when do you get off the miracle round? When will I eventually not have to go up and down and up and down anymore? When will I ne- not have to endure the next crash anymore? And the solution is to crawl under the table. You want to play games with those who cut off thumbs? You want to keep fighting the difficulties of your life? You want to keep thinking, I've got to do this and I've got to do that and we're going to succeed in this and we're going to get money and we're going to pay and buy? and You want to do that for the rest of your life? Now it's metaphorical, but I submit to you that Jesus said to Peter, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Is that the kind of life you want? No, crawl under the table and cry out for scraps. Before you think, well, the scraps might not be very good. That woman's daughter was demon-possessed and healed the very same day. The scraps are pretty good. It's better than seeking victories at this place, one thumb at a time, one mark at a time, one success and victory at a time. And before you say, no, no, this is not me, I want you to think even about some of the spiritual disciplines or think about evangelism, right? If you know the Lord Jesus Christ and you've ever talked to somebody about Jesus, I want to say to you that if you have ever talked to somebody about Jesus because you want to see that person saved and that's your motivation, then you are guilty of exactly what we're learning about in the scripture today. Because what if they did accept Jesus Christ as Lord? What if you shared the gospel with them? And they said, yes, I believe. And they prayed right then. And they got baptized. And they began to live faithfully for the Lord. Then what just happens? Well, it's a victory. Well, yeah, it's a victory. It's a false victory. You say, no, but it's a real victory because they really got saved. So first of all, you don't know that for sure. But you assume that's true because of their profession and so on. If you're thinking... Okay, now they've got saved. Now I surely need to go and share the gospel with somebody else so they can get saved. You're just going from thumb to thumb. That's all you're doing. One victory to another victory. You're looking for the next thing. You're doing the same thing the world's doing. But if instead you will say, I must share the gospel. I must tell people about Jesus because that is who God has made me to be. He gave us the great commission. He says, you shall be my witnesses and my power will come upon you. The Holy Spirit has passion for the people around me. The Holy Spirit loves people, jealously yearns for people and I should be telling people not just so that they can get saved which would be a great victory but because that's who I am because I live under the table and this is one of the scraps that I have been given the opportunity to tell anybody who will listen about Jesus hear me when I say it this way you need to tell other people about Jesus more than they need to hear about Jesus and I'm not just talking about if it's somebody that doesn't know Jesus and they're going to hell. That's pretty extreme. You say, well, they're going to spend eternity in hell. I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. I submit to you, if you can't bring yourself to tell somebody about Jesus, you ain't under the table eating scraps. You're counting thumbs. Because you think that that which you have been given, which is nourishing and powerful and is a ticket through to an eternity, that you need to share that with somebody else rather than realizing that that thing is infectious. It is empowering. It should be boiling out of you Everywhere you go. Otherwise, you're just counting victories in your flesh rather than actually being successful in your spirit to leave this flesh behind. 
We don't tell people about Jesus because they need to know about Jesus. Actually, it says, because we know the terror of the Lord, we've had a peek under the blanket, we persuade men. That's what it says. Because we know the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. When he said, go ye therefore, he meant, there's a logical reason you should be going. Go ye therefore. That's what we like to leave the ye therefore out, right? We like to leave the ye out because that means I got to go. And then we want to leave the therefore out because that would mean there was a good logical reason. And I'm submitting to you today that the good logical reason is because we are under the table receiving the scraps of Jesus. And one of those great scraps is you two can come and receive scraps because this is not our home. We are elsewhere bound and I have a ticket, a ticket that I cannot share with you, but you can get your own from the master if you're willing to sit under the table like me. If you do not have this victory, get under the table, cry out for the scraps, and never forget it's not about the thumbs, but about the time in between thumbs. It is about how we live our lives. It is about who Christ is in us. If you take a thumb, and I'm not saying you, you can never take a thumb, there may be a time which God wants you to do that, right? So I, I would say this is, if, as long as you live, if you must fight, if a man breaks into your house with a gun or a knife, if you're in a bank and it's being robbed, if you're called to go to war, as long as you live, if you must fight a win or lose battle, in other words, God has told you you must, then win. Literally, never lose. If God has told you you must, then you put everything you have on the line to win that fight, whatever it is. But never forget that the fight is not the point. It's the living for Jesus that's the point. I wouldn't be in the fight. I wouldn't be armed. I wouldn't be stepping up. I wouldn't be speaking out if it wasn't because Jesus is sustaining me. Jesus, it says, all things are to him and for him. You may know, uh, many people know, have memorized a verse, uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10 really go together, um, and it ends resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. But do you know verse 11, where it says for, which is a because? The scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Let me say this by way of a summary today. You need an exit strategy. Some point in time, you're going to have to stand at the top of your own gravel pile and realize that there are more enemies, and quite frankly, they, for all practical appearances, are bigger than you, more numerous than you, you cannot play the thumb-chopping game for the rest of your life. You cannot win that way. Rather, you need an exit strategy. Once you've tossed down those who would take you down, you need an exit strategy. And the exit strategy is this. Start over. Stop right there. Remember I told you that two days later I went to school and all the guys were there and they were thinking about various ways to kind of teach me a lesson 
after I had walked away and I was the only person who never got thrown down the gravel that day. So I was the only person who didn't come home with scut- cuts and nicks and scrapes and bruises and gravel in my underwear, that kind of thing. One of the guys with his little crowd behind him walked up to me and he said, he said, you think you're pretty tough, don't you? You know what I said? I could have said, yeah, come on, bring it on. That's what I said for the last like year and a half and he'd have probably brought it on and I'd have probably kicked his butt because that's the way it went. But he had those guys gathered back there and I realized this fight could go on forever. They could just keep coming. No more gravel pile. Just any time I'm not looking, slicing the tires on my bike, you know, or hiding my bike. I had one guy do that to me one time to kind of get back at me. Hiding my bike, so I'll come out after school and I got to ride home. It's half a mile, three quarters of a mile was all it was, but then I go home and tell my mom I don't have my bike. Whatever. They just keep coming. The enemy's just going to keep coming. You need an exit strategy. So you know what I said? He said, you think you're pretty tough, don't you? And I said, no. No, I don't. And he said, you're the king of the hill. And I said, this is just luck. I'm not tough. I may have accumulated victories, but I'm not tough. Now in Christ, we are undefeatable. And when the ultimate victory, when the ultimate victory comes, right before it will come what looks like the ultimate defeat. The blanket of false victory will be tossed off and you and I will face death followed by judgment. Will you be tough that day? You know how many men have had a gun put to their head? Or, or how many women have sat by the bedside of their husband as he's passing away, staring into years without their spouse? How many children have lost somebody really close to them? Or God forbid, been victims of sex trafficking or violence, whatever, and they were just completely and utterly destroyed. You think they thought they were tough? Would you feel tough faced with death and judgment? You'll be collecting no thumbs that day. Maybe it'd be better if you were willing to accept scraps that day. We're going to sing one last song and come to that moment in time in our service where we ask ourselves, where do you stand? Are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe in what God has done through His Son? And if you've trusted in Jesus, then you've got to stop letting the other things hold you back. You've got to stop thinking about this victory that you desire, this thing that you want to do, this goal that you're trying to get to. You don't want to think about any of that stuff until you've worked out for sure that you are under the table receiving the scraps. And the way to do that is to trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus alone is the way to salvation. He said, I am the way and the truth and life. No man cometh unto me except by the Father. And I submit to you that Paul wrote, those who believe in him will not be disappointed. Will you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today if you've never done so? And if you have done so, and yet you've allowed the enemy to sort of trick you, the world system to trick you that you need this victory, you need that thing to go right, you need that to go right, you need this to go away, or this to come, so that you're sort of living above the blanket, will you be reminded, will you be reminded today 
that those are all false victories. And that the single great victory is that exit strategy in which Jesus says, you're coming with me. And let that be your stance. If you got to fight, fight. Fight in the Lord. If you got to win, win. Win in the Lord. Fueled by, empowered by, safe inside. His provision. Under the table. Thanks for joining us for this service at New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo. We hope that it encouraged you to reach New Heights in Jesus. New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church is a Southern Baptist Church plant, 15 years old. In fact, it constituted four, four years ago this coming May, and we'll be celebrating our anniversary the third week of May of 2020. Four years. Love to connect up with you however the Lord should lead. Check us out on churchtoledo.com and all aspects of the ministry, Pastor Daniel Stevenson's ministry and the church, New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church and Life Station and Fog and Moon Books and Firestorm Church Planting and Evangelism. It's all there laid out. Maybe not every last detail, but a lot of information. And so hope you'll check out churchtoledo.com. If you'd like to partner with us, you can text P-A-R-T-N-E-R. -E That's the word partner to 419-419-0095. You can also text GIVE, G-I-V-E, to that uh, texting number, 419-419-0095, and you'll be able to set up your credit card or debit card to give directly to the ministry at New Heights. If you're interested in giving to the Life Station directly, you can text LSGIVE, and you'll notice that there are a number of other messages on podcasts from the Life Station. The Life Station is a community outreach center in the city of Toledo doing war against loneliness, poverty, hunger, and hopelessness in the city of Toledo, overcoming evil with good. So there it is. You've tuned in, you've listened, and I hope you prayerfully consider reaching new heights in Jesus in every possible way. Let's begin by being willing to receive the scraps from the Lord. The scraps from his table are better than the table anywhere else. God bless you today.